0: Welcome to this new BICOM podcast. I'm Sam. I'm the Research Associate at BICOM, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Yaakov Lapin. Yaakov, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Obviously, most of our listeners will be familiar with Yaakov, with but for those who are not, Yaakov uh, is a Military and Strategic Affairs Analyst. He is an Associate Researcher at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, and the Israel Correspondent for Jane's Defense Weekly and the Jewish News Syndicate. Yaakov, I thought we could, for this podcast, we could kind of take a step away from the annexation hype, which has kind of dominated the Israel news cycle for a little over a month, and talk more about the wider regional context which Israel operates in. I thought maybe we could start with Syria, and there have been a few reports in Israel over the past month suggesting that the coronavirus has forced Iran to kind of halt its activities a lot more in Syria. And just before leaving the defense ministry, Naftali Bennett said Iran had begun to, with the withdrawal process from Syria, starting with its forces and evacuating a number of bases, suggesting that Israel's military campaign, which it calls the campaign between the war, in Syria is working. Um, Given the alleged kind of new Israeli airstrikes this Tuesday, which has been kind of reported as kind of unprecedented in terms of where it's happened in Syria, I think for some of the first times in, in Southeast, How do you rate Bennett's statement and what is the kind of current state of play between Israel and Iran in Syria at the moment?
1: Well, I agree with the premise of your question, which is that when we have reports of Israeli strikes in Syria, that's usually an indication uh, that Iran has once again been caught trying to turn Syria into a new war front against Israel. So every time we get those reports, we can Uh, and should see them as confirmation that Iran is up to its usual uh, business in Syria, which is trying to smuggle in uh, weapons, precision guided missiles, cruise missiles, and a host of other activity, which we can go into um, a little bit later. Um, So I think that uh, if we uh, put together uh, the the latest reports we've had this week of extensive strikes, um, together with reports in May of another uh, series of strikes. Um, It seems pretty clear that, as far as Iran is concerned, um, it's business as usual in Syria. um, And they may have made some tactical adjustments, trying to disguise their force buildup activities and trying to push them away from the Israeli border, perhaps further north and further east, where we've seen some of these strikes. But these are tactical adjustments. This is not a change in Iran's strategy. Um, So I think, uh, you know, earlier... um, um, hopes that Iran is rolling back its operations in Syria, we're, we're simply too optimistic, and we're seeing that they're, that they're back at it under the leadership of the new Quds, Quds Force commander, Ismail Ka'ani. Um he's, he's trying to do exactly what his predecessor uh, tried to do, um, and, and, and turn Syria into a war front against Israel, albeit using different tactics, possibly.
0: So you say that the tactics might have shifted, but that kind of strategic game is still there for Iran. Do do you see that kind of continuing over the coming months and and maybe years? Or at some point will someone say enough is enough and will try to kind of rebalance the dynamic much more in their favor?
1: Well, I think that um, there are multiple actors in the Syrian arena and the interplay between uh, the Russians and the Iranians is going to be very important, I think, going forward because um In terms of uh, the ability to cause Iran to stop uh, uh, trying to build up offensive uh, military and terrorist capabilities in Syria, uh, the Israeli strikes are not enough to make Iran give up its ambitions. They're enough to make Iran uh, fail to realize its long-term program for Syria. I mean, if Iran, had things its way, it would now have an army of 100,000 Shiite uh, militia members under its command. Uh, actually, it's got less than 30 percent of that. It would have a network of of missiles um, um, deployed across Syria. This was the vision of Qasem Soleimani, and these weapons and 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 personnel will be flowing in. Uh, uh, through flights and and over uh, land corridors and and uh, through you know um, naval smuggling and most of that has been stopped and I think Israel's campaign deserves a lot of credit for achieving many of its goals but it has not succeeded in causing the Iranians to give up um, and what would give what would do that it's very unclear I think that Russia um, as I've said has the ability to pressure Iran to roll back to some extent. Uh, its, its activities. There is intense competition taking place uh, over the future of Syria between uh, the Assad regime's two principal allies, uh, Russia and Iran. So a combination perhaps of, of Russian pressure, uh, Israeli pressure, and uh, possibly some quiet pushback from the Assad regime itself could potentially lead to some sort of pause by Iran. But I have to... Um, condition that by saying that so long as the Iranian regime has its current ideology in place, um, and so long as it's interested in uh, exporting the revolution, creating a sphere of influence to Shiite access, um, so long as that regime is, is in place, it can be expected to always try and turn Syria uh, into its sphere of influence and into a new uh, a base of attack that would join Lebanon uh, against Israel.
0: You mentioned obviously the Assad regime and, and how it kind of I suppose, in, 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 during the kind of civil war, it invited Iran to come into its country. Um, th- there's been recent reports that the Assad regime is, is approaching or perhaps is, that, is at its most fiscal stage, not in terms yeah. of winning the civil war, but in terms of sustaining itself financially. Um, you mentioned there, obviously, Lebanon and Lebanese banks are on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, many of Assad's family members, who are also some of Syria's richest businessmen and who have propped up the regime, have fallen out of favour with the president. And now you've got the new kind of Caesar app coming in, which is starting to sanction entities involved in helping the Assad regime. How credible do you think those reports are of the Assad regime and is it on its last knees or or do you think it can survive?
1: I'm of the opinion that at least in the short term, um, the the survival of the regime um, is not in great doubt. I mean, if we look at the situation of the Assad regime five years ago, right, when it controlled a, a small minority of what used to be Syria, and we compare it to what it is today, which is more than 70% of Syrian con- uh, territory back under the Assad regime's control. Um, and there, and it's really Idlib, uh, in the north, that's, that's the last remaining pocket of the Sunnis. I don't think that this is a regime that's going to collapse because of an economic crisis when it was on the verge of, of a physical and material and economic collapse, uh, you know, five years ago. So I think that if we, if we take a zoom out uh, approach here, the Assad regime's chances of of making it, at least in the short-term future, it's very difficult to predict beyond that, are fairly good. Um, And I think the fact um, that the demographic balance has shifted in favor of the the ruling Alawites, although they're still very much a minority, the fact that uh, more than 5 million Sunnis have fled Syria, uh, since the start of the war and has shifted the demographic balance in favor of the Alawites and their Shiite uh, Iranian allies is another factor that will help them stabilize, from their perspective, uh, the regime. So the economic crisis is extremely serious, um, more so even in Lebanon, as you've noted. I don't think it's an existential threat uh, to the Assad regime, which has, has uh, you know, fared far more severe storms in, in, in its recent history.
0: Let's, um, let's move on to Iran. And you mentioned earlier about kind of Iran and it's um, trying to prop up its kind of sheer militias. Most, most security officials in, in Israel will kind of continue to say that Iran remains Israel's greatest threat. And, and at the moment, the US is trying to get the UN to extend this arms embargo on Iran, which is due to expire this October. Israel has been a fairly vocal advocate of the UN indefinitely imposing the arm, arms ban. But also other countries like Russia and China have a veto on the Security Council, and I'd like you to oppose such a move. Perhaps you could explain for kind of our listeners how important that arms embargo is for the region, and what could Iran do without one? What's kind of the risk for Israel if, if that arms embargo is, is lifted?
1: So the Iranian threat to Israel takes two forms. One is the regional alignment activity which we've we've been discussing, and the other is the nuclear program. Uh, in my mind, the arms embargo is actually directly tied to the Iranian nuclear threat. And I'll explain why. If, if the embargo is lifted, um, and perhaps somebody like Russia would begin selling more advanced air defense systems to Iran, more advanced than they've already sold the S-300, um, that could in turn increase the confidence of the Tehran regime, that uh, it could feel that it would have the ability to better protect its, its nuclear program. And, and the sites that are spread out across the, uh, the country, and that could give it the confidence to go for a nuclear breakout. Um, so I, in, I directly tie uh, the embargo to Iran's confidence and uh, its ability to protect the nuclear program. Right now, it doesn't seem very confident that could, it could protect it from an Israeli or an American air assault. Um, but that could change with with the lifting of the embargo. So. The embargo has a strategic long-term effect on, on Iran's future decision-making. Um, and other things that Iran could buy aside from air defenses are things like modern combat aircraft. Um, you know, they've been trying to modernize their air force, which is largely obsolete. Um, and they could also be buying things like um, anti-ship cruise missiles, which they've been trying to produce domestically with some level of, of success, it has to be said. Um, but the minute that this embargo is lifted, the Iranians could really start going for some modernization and weapons and force buildup programs. And that would obviously have a negative effect on the region. So um, it's very important, not only for Israel, but also for Sunni states that are threatened by Iran, and for the region as a whole, um, that that embargo not be lifted.
0: You mentioned obviously the Iran nuclear nuclear program. Um, what's the sense in Israel at the moment in terms of obviously US elections are coming up in November? <laughs> Um, obviously Biden has come out and said that he's in favour of returning to the JCPOA the nuclear deal Um, Trump we're still not sure they'll see that they're doing their kind of maximum pressure campaign and it's probably likely that if he's re-elected Trump then he'll continue with that but there is kind of some talk in Israel that there are kind of concerns that if Trump is re-elected the Iranians will actually eventually kind of come back to the negotiating table and, and maybe do a deal which isn't in Israel's favour. It, what's kind of what's the kind of mood at the moment in Israel in terms of U.S. presidential elections and where the nuclear kind of file could go? I,
1: I think it's worth noting that um, even before looking ahead to November and, and the presidential elections, there's a lot of concern in the defense establishment in Israel right now about the Iranian nuclear program. Because if you just look at the latest IAEA reports, um, they've enriched more than 1,500 kilograms of uranium, of low-enriched uranium, They're approximately four months away from break break out if they take the decision to break out, which they have not uh, done apparently so far. But uh, the fact that they've amassed this amount of uh, low enriched uranium is extremely troubling uh, to the defense establishment here. And it's something that's becoming more and more urgent um, as time goes by because those uh, centrifuges are spinning um, in places like uh, Natanz in Fordow, where they were supposed to have stopped under the uh, agreement, um, and and in other sites. So so the nuclear program is actually making alarming progress. And even uh, by November, it could be in a different place from where it is today. And, and that's actually formed a top priority alert within Israel today. Um, and looking forward, I think there's a great deal of uncertainty over where this is going. Um, it's clear that the Iranians, are trying to prove to the US that the maximum uh, pressure uh, campaign will fail and that Iran cannot be coerced in this manner, but it's still dangling uh, the option of a new deal as you've you've pointed out. Um, And and, and of course, you know, many of the players in this equation are unpredictable, and this could either go to some sort of breakthrough, which seems unlikely at this stage, a diplomatic breakthrough, Or uh, more likely it could head in the direction of escalation. Um, The more that Iran is distressed and pressured, the more its economy is under pressure, um, the more that uh, its oil exports are challenged, and and the more that its population is disgruntled, um, and the American um, effective economic pressure campaign is in place, the more likely Iran is to behave aggressively in the region, um, and even though they're deterred by the U.S. now following uh, the Suleimani assassination, that deterrence could once again begin to erode. So right now we're in this halfway point. Um, you know, there is some sort of stability, but it looks like uh, the more Iran will be distressed. It's, it, it, it's certainly banking on a, on a Biden victory for the hope of an American administration that will uh, 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 Step back from this maximum pressure campaign. That's certainly an Iranian hope. But I don't think uh, that they're that they're betting all their chips on that outcome. And in any case, they've already proven their willingness to escalate the security situation across the Middle East when the regime feels like its back is against the wall.
0: Okay, great. Let's um let's kind of talk more about on on, like, on, up, on the home front. And obviously Israel has a new government and with that it has a new defense minister, um, Benny Gantz, who's also the alternate prime minister um yes. so far he's had to kind of have little action under kind of under his kind of his ministry so far i think last week was a Gaza rocket attack and it was the first thing maybe 40 days but it's been one of the quietest, quietest periods on, on the Gaza border for maybe the last kind of three to four years how different do you think Gantz would approach kind of Israel security challenges ones we mentioned there like we see southern syria the iran nuclear challenge um, did you think he'll come with a different st- standpoint, or do you think he'll kind of, Bibi will kind of prevent him from having his own kind of approach to kind of Israel's security challenges? Well,
1: I think it's worth pointing out that you know Gantz and Netanyahu have both um, shaped Israel's defense um, policies for many years. Gantz as chief of staff. Um, and he's very used to working with Netanyahu on all of these issues, so they're going to actually be in their comfort zone, and they're both very familiar with their one another's opinions and and working methods and approaches to these issues. Um, it's also worth pointing out uh, that you know uh, a defense minister, any defense minister, doesn't have the ability to make uh, peace or war decisions on their own. It always has to come down to a decision by the prime minister followed by a cabinet vote on, on any uh, step that, that that could lead to war, for example. So I think that Gantz is going to be very much uh, reflecting the defense establishment's views, You know, the place where he comes from as a former chief of staff and where he's very much uh, in his comfort zone. He's going to be um, Uh, displaying those perspectives um, to the cabinet, and he will be representing many of the defense establishments, more traditional uh, approaches to the cabinet. And that means, in effect, um, seeking stability, looking to avoid um, doing things that will uh, create uh, sudden uh, escalations and instability, uh, prioritizing things. Uh, The defense establishment is very much interested in prioritizing the northern front uh, Lebanon, Syria, and Iran um, over the Palestinian arena so long as that's possible, and of course that's not always possible. And I think that uh, Netanyahu will certainly have to take Gantz's opinions into consideration because um, the government is set up in such a way that uh, he's, he will not be able to ignore um, the positions of, of blue and white on, on, on these critical issues. Um, so there will be an influence. I believe it will be mostly be quiet and behind the scenes. It will not be a visible uh, exchange of opinions on, on areas of disagreement. Um, but I think that uh, Gantz will, will certainly be uh, bringing in the general staff, the idea of general staff's uh, more pragmatic decision-making patterns to the cabinet. And another thing I think is worth pointing out um, is that a major priority will be uh, getting a defense budget in place, uh, the IDF has a new working plan, which it hopes will uh, take it into the 21st century, into the world of, of, of asymmetrical warfare as it appears in the Middle East today, and a hidden enemy, which is extremely uh, well-equipped, uh, extremely challenging, but, but very, a very far cry from the traditional adversaries that you know, Israel has faced. Um, so the need to fund and underwrite this new program is going to be a top priority for guns and for the defense establishment, and it couldn't come at a worse time because the extra money that they will be seeking will, of course, be the subject of competition by so many other ministries uh, due to the unprecedented uh, economic uh, situation that the country and much of the world is in following the uh, coronavirus pandemic.
0: Yeah, you you mentioned the coronavirus, and obviously it's going to have a, a massive impact on ministries trying to get their budgets for their, for their programs and something which I've noticed you've been writing quite a lot about recently is the IDF's role in trying to help combat the pandemic in Israel. Um, how important has the IDF been in, in helping the kind of these civil authorities in combating the spread of the disease? It's not something which in the UK you would hear a lot about, the, the military getting involved in, in a kind of like a civil issue. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective on, on the IDF's role in Israel. So uh, yeah,
1: I would say the IDF's assistance has been very important and it probably could have been uh, more involved than it was. And this is a government decision, it's not the IDF's decision, but the fact that you know the Home Front Command, which is a very unique command in Israel because of Israel's unique geography and the fact that adversaries are, are literally on the border, the Home Front Command here has uh, great experience in, in command and control, and working directly with the civilian world, with hospitals and industry. So the fact that they were called upon to uh, set up corona hotels in very little time took the pressure off hospitals by bringing the mild patients in. The fact that home front command vehicles were running uh, tests to labs and back um, was, was something that helped logistically. Uh, The fact that the defense ministry um, away from the Home Front Command actually launched a fairly phenomenal operation in my view to import uh, medical equipment including ventilators from around the world um, right at the start of the pandemic when really the world was in a chaotic place much more so than today and it was able to bring in plane loads of medical equipment and at the same time kickstart a domestic medical supply uh, program here, a production program Uh, that was based on defense companies um, converting some of their production lines to make ventilators. Pretty incredible stuff. Also, technology that was coming in from the defense world, like algorithms and heat cameras, and all placed at the service of doctors. And, you know, we saw military intelligence and the Shin Bet uh, Domestic Intelligence Agency using their ability to work with big data uh, to help track and assess the the, uh, viral threat so all these things I think I think have been very, very uh, beneficial in Israel's ability to cope with the virus. I think that the defense establishment could play and may well play a bigger role um, in, in the future. Um, and I think that it's going to have a very important um, uh, influence, long-term influence, uh, particularly when it comes to the IDF's relationships with certain segments of society. I think we saw a breakthrough in relations between the ultra-Orthodox in the IDF when uh, the IDF went into places like Nabok at the outset of the virus and really played a key role in bringing it under control and the same is true in a number of uh, Arab towns and villages. Um, I think that had a very positive influence on the way those communities uh, perceive the military here in Israel.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, b- before I let you leave, I know you, you have a busy afternoon there in Israel, I just had to ask you also about annexation and and maybe talk maybe about the kind of the regional impacts or, or maybe more specific, just specifically how the Arab countries could react. Um, I I obviously some reports in Israel, maybe from like the right wing newspapers, are saying that actually the, the Arab messages in public are a little bit different to them in private. Um, do, do you buy that line or do you think that the Arabs are actually serious in, in what they're saying in terms of, you know, Israel-Arab relations will be kind of taken a step back if annexation does occur?
1: I think that uh, the Arab governments are concerned about what you know is commonly known as unintended consequences uh, while they certainly want to continue uh, their cooperation and relationship with Israel out of their interest because this cooperation helps them deal with common threats like Iran, it helps in several other sectors like uh, technology and uh, economic cooperation is, is something that, that they're very much interested in. Um, they also have to take the uh, public opinion uh, of their populations into account. And I think the warnings are really, they've been a little bit confused. I mean, even the public statements by some Gulf countries from the same country, for example, the UAE, uh, we saw a, a representative and a former representative saying slightly different things, um, showing that you know they want to maintain the budding and growing cooperation and relationship with Israel, Um, but they're basically pointing at their populations and saying, look, uh, there are limits to how far this can go if the public opinion is going to turn against Israel. I think that's the essence of their warning, um, and it's something that has to be taken into account by uh, the Israeli government. Um, And, you know, I think that's really the way their warnings should be understood. It's not something it's, it's, it's more like a, a bystander if we're looking at it from the perspective of, of the Arab government saying, you know, look, I want to continue cooperation and, and we probably will, but um, we cannot ignore public opinion. So do what you can to, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, exercise damage control. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the most plain, direct uh, analysis that I could offer about, about the messages coming out of the Arab world.
0: Right, Um, Jakob, we've covered so much there. Thank you so much for, for your insights and your thoughts. My pleasure, thank you very much for having me.